Psalm 16. We're going to read from the beginning of Psalm 16. Verse 1 to the end of the psalm. Psalm 16, another psalm of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and while we are grateful for all the words that proceed from your mouth, we are conscious of the fact that some words do uh, seem to encourage us and bless us in unique ways. And so we thank you and pray that Psalm 16 may be such a psalm. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, There's usually signs that you can tell when somebody's in a good mood. And we're all a bit different. Uh, some people, just by the very fact that they talk, you go, oh, they must be in a good mood. Uh, they're talking. Other people, they smile. Um, other people uh, have their own ways of being in a good mood. Uh, David, clearly, when he's in a good mood, seems to also write psalms. You, you do get dark and depressed David. But you also get happy David. Psalm 16 is Happy David. It is a psalm that you read and you, you don't see a whole lot of darkness. You don't see a whole lot of suffering. You see a whole lot of promises. And as I've been looking at the psalms lately, there have been verses that stick out of certain psalms. Trust in Him at all times. Or the steadfast love of the Lord, which endures forever. Or He takes thought of me And I've tried to sometimes emphasize certain verses to help you uh, capture the essence of the psalm. But in Psalm 16, it's not really a psalm you can say, here's a verse. Uh, The whole psalm are really verses you can take to heart. And I think if there was ever an argument for memorizing a psalm other than Psalm 23, which let's admit it, you kind of cheat by uh, singing it so often, Psalm 16 might be one that I would encourage you to memorize and have upon your lips. And why is that? Well, 
Notice the intro of this psalm sets up the rest of the psalm. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. So everything else about this psalm is basically based upon this one verse. In you I take refuge. And what does it mean to take refuge in God? Well, it opens up a whole life, a whole vision a whole way of looking at everything if you can take refuge in God. And that is what David does. He says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. Now, this is easier to say than it is to believe. To say I have no good apart from you. The natural man has no knowledge of this principle. Imagine saying, I have nothing good except as it relates to God, except as I take refuge in God. Everything that is good in his life is because he takes refuge in God. And because he takes refuge in God, he can truly say this, and I believe, can believe this. I have no good apart from you. Augustine actually makes this comment, and it's really quite something. I believe it was Augustine. It is a greater glory to us that we are allowed to serve God than it is to Him that we offer Him that service. It's greater glory that we can actually serve God than He gets anything from that service. He is not rendered happy by us, but we are made happy in Him. We don't make God any happier, more blessed than He is. He is infinitely happy, but He makes you happy as you take refuge in Him. And what good do you have if you don't have God? If you don't have God as the source of all goodness, as the refuge in which you take shelter, think about what good could you have that would ever last? What good can you take with you after you die? What good lasts? And you can say, well, after I die, I'm taking this house with me, and I like this car, and I like this person. I'm taking it with me. You have nothing you can take with you. So the point is, you have no good that ultimately lasts because you will one day die. And yet, what good do you have if God is your refuge? If you can say, I have no good apart from God. And the answer is, everything, because His goodness follows you. When you see that God is good and He is the source of all goodness and He is the eternal God, it means that when you say, I have no good apart from you, it means that in God I have everything that's good and so goodness will follow me all the days of this life but the life to come. And we can also say, what good do you have if you have God And yet you have suffering. And the answer is that God takes even our suffering and turns it for good. So the non-believer looks at bad things and they are always bad things to the non-believer. The Christian can even look at bad things and see redemptive value even in bad things. We don't celebrate bad things because they're bad. We celebrate the fact that God is able to use bad things for our good. So when God is our good, everything is good in a certain manner of speaking. There was a missionary, Robert Morrison, in 1807. He went to uh, China from London, and it was a 
27-year span uh, in certain parts of China. And he translated the Bible into Chinese, and he wrote a catechism and produced actually a Chinese grammar, Chinese-English-speaking dictionary. He even started a newspaper there, and he helped found a college in China and served as a translator for the British government and uh, spent 27 years. And in that time, doing all those things, he had 10 converts. 10 converts. And yet, because God was his good, he can be absolutely certain that God is able to take those 10 converts and one day they can become 10 million. They can become 10 billion. The point is, when you have God as your good, you can trust everything that God gives to you, whether he gives you 10 converts or 10,000, because God is good. So David says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. It means you are in control. You are in charge. I have no good apart from you. So whatever good I have from you is a good that you have been pleased to give me and a good that I can trust. So he speaks of God as his portion, but then he speaks of God's people. Verse 3, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Now, remember I said earlier, this is easier to say than believe when you get to verse 2. Verse 3 perhaps is even harder. It is easier to say than believe. Do you actually think of God's people as being your delight? Of all of the delights that we have in this world, what should be the highest. Of course, God is our chief delight, but in terms of what we see around us, the things we can taste and touch, what are the things where we have delight? And David is able to say as a king, the excellent ones referring to God's people in whom is all my delight. So the question is, to what extent does that describe your Christian living, where God's people are a delight to you? To what extent do you enjoy being with God's people, fellowshipping with God's people? Remember in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they give themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, and to fellowship and the breaking of bread. Now, I must admit, uh, this morning at church, I was quite happy because in Surrey, I sensed a Nice vibrancy after the service. Lots of exciting things were happening. Had a young man say he wants to be baptized. Great stuff. We had the young lady who just wandered into church. And then today, 60 years of God's faithfulness to Paul and Bernice. And there was cake everywhere. And I even took a little extra for the drive home. And and I just sensed that there was a real spirit of fellowship after. So... I think we can all say that we do love God's people. They are the excellent ones in whom is all our delight. But while we can often say we like God's people, while we can say that they are our friends, I'm not totally convinced that we can rise this high often. Imagine actually saying, as for God's people, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. 
So I want you to think about people in this building right now and whether you judge them as excellent ones or something else. Annoying one. Pestering one. Whatever one. They are the excellent ones. And if David as the king of Israel can refer to people under him as excellent ones, we should be able to do the same thing. He contrasts God's people with those who run after another God. And he says their sorrows shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood, their idolatry, I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Now, here's a real struggle. I think if we're being honest with ourselves, here's the real struggle. There are sometimes people who are not Christians that we actually have a lot of delight in. And I'm not even saying that's necessarily a bad thing. There are non-Christians who have many great qualities. There are some non-Christians I know, they're funny, or they have a certain type of honor about things, or they're helpful. And so it can be hard for us at times to really understand the antithesis between those who serve other gods and those who serve the true God, and how we should delight in one and not try to follow the other. David is trying to get, I think, himself and us to understand that despite people of the world having many excellent qualities, and I think David would even acknowledge that, you always have to remember that there is something far more special that unites you to every child of God than what can ever unite you to a non-believer. And that is your unity in Christ. That is your eternal destiny. That is where you will be with them forever and ever. And that will mean a great deal of hard work on your end to see that these people are excellent ones in whom is all your delight. So those are God's people. But look at something else he praises God for. God's providence. Verses 5 And six, he says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. So right after he said, I'm not going to follow in the way of idolatry, he reaffirms God is his chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Here he's speaking about the providence of God in his life. And when you look at the providence of God in your life as a Christian, you marvel at what He has done to bring you to this point. I think one of the better things you can do as a Christian is engage in Christian meditation. And Christian meditation is a little bit different than prayer. And sometimes they can coalesce at times, and I'm not trying to dissuade you from having a little bit of prayer and meditation, but just simply thinking about all of the various elements in your life that have brought you to the point where you are sitting here with hope, with faith, and with love towards God, where God has orchestrated millions upon millions of little events to bring you to this point where you are serving Him, when so many don't. When so many do live in misery and distress and unhappiness, God is saying, I have ordered your life, and I have done this. And David is saying, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. 
And that theme is picked up through the rest of Scripture. Inheritance is a big deal to Christians. We should be very concerned about our inheritance. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 34, Jesus speaks about the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Inherit. Do you have an inheritance? Yes. So Peter will say that we are born again into a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. I have bad news for some of you. And this is hopefully not a political statement. But the government's going to take a lot of your inheritance if you get it. And it's going to make you upset. Especially if your parents haven't been very good in figuring out how to avoid it legally. And you're going to get what you think is a nice check. And then some nice young man or nice young lady is going to come by and, as it were, bring scissors and cut a good portion of that check. And say, thank you very much. This will go to much good use. And if you aren't a Christian, that is enough to make you extremely depressed. I mean, even as a Christian, I think we would struggle with that. But the point is, there's a sense in which someone could come along because of a new inheritance tax and take it all, and a Christian can say, I will not be shaken. I will not be shaken because God has promised me an eternal inheritance. It is imperishable. Nobody can touch it. Nobody can ruin it. It is unfading, and it is kept in heaven by a good God. So in Colossians, we read, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. There's so much about what our future reward is going to be, and David believes this. I have a beautiful inheritance. God orders your whole life in a way that will glorify Him and bless you. God has promised things future. He's given you things present. He's given you excellent ones in whom is your delight. Your inheritance is now, but it's also reserved in heaven. You have a beautiful inheritance. But God also preserves David in verses 7 to 8. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. Whether in the day or in the night, David is blessed. He is blessed because of what God gives to him, whether excellent ones, whether good lines in terms of his providence, or here he gives him counsel. Do you see the emphasis on God giving and giving and giving and giving And in the night my heart instructs me, I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. The Christian is the most secure person in the world. Nobody can actually ruin anything for you because God is your refuge. God is your inheritance. And so the great answer to insecurity is a psalm like Psalm 16. I have set the Lord always before before me. This will keep you from doing a lot of stupid things, by the way. Most of the stupid things you will do in your life will because you have not set the Lord before you. You are not gazing upon the glory 
of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You are not setting God before you, and so you are running into directions you have no business running in. David sets the Lord always before him, and he will not be shaken. Remember that psalm where it begins out? I will not be greatly shaken. And then later on, he says, I will not be shaken. Well, here he says, I shall not be shaken because he has set the Lord before him. God is going to preserve him and care for him. And then God gives another promise in verses 9 to 10. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, God has written eternity into everybody's hearts. But when Peter and Paul insisted in their first sermons that this language is actually too strong even for David's own life. So when David says, my flesh also dwells secure, there's a sense in which he is clearly hoping for a resurrection. But this is only true because it is true of Christ. I haven't spoken of the Westminster Shorter Catechism for a while from the pulpit, but question 37 asks, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? So what benefits, what inheritance do you receive from Christ at death? The thing about an inheritance, as you know, is that usually you're waiting for someone else to die. My uh, friend, you'll remember Noel Weeks, preached here many years ago. Um, He died uh, a couple years ago, and uh, I found out today that his dad is still living, and he's the second oldest person in Australia, uh, which is is quite remarkable. But uh, I remember Noel Weeks speaking about how wealthy his dad was, and he didn't say it in any sort of way where he seemed at all remotely interested. I can assure you, if you looked at Noel Weeks' life, you wouldn't think money was a struggle for him. But usually an inheritance, you're waiting for someone else to die. But the Christian actually dies and receives their inheritance. So the question is, what do we receive from Christ at death? And we are told, the souls of believers at their death are made perfect in holiness. That would be enough. And do immediately pass into glory and their bodies, being still united to Christ, to rest in their graves till the resurrection. When David says, my flesh also dwells secure, he's even talking about the fact that when he breathes his last, his flesh still will be secure. When you see someone buried and they're a Christian, their flesh dwells secure because their flesh is united to Christ. And that flesh will be resurrected one day whatever is left of it whatever particle of dust it dwells secure and will be resurrected bodily resurrection that is why david can say that and that is why we are christians and that is why i think this is such an important text for peter at pentecost where he quotes psalm 16 in his first sermon But then finally, after God's promise that David's flesh will dwell secure and he will not abandon him to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption, we see God's pleasures. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
One commentator said, this verse is unsurpassed for the beauty of the prospect it opens up. In words of the utmost simplicity. Think about that. This verse is unsurpassed for the beauty of the prospect it opens up. You begin with, I take refuge in the Lord. And look what you end with. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Forevermore. Augustine said, Lord, I am content to suffer any pains and torments in this world if I might see your face one day. But, alas, were it only a day, it would rather be an aggravation of misery. He says, I'll suffer anything in this life if I know that one day I will get to see your face. But if I got to see your face and it was only one day, it would actually be an aggravation of misery because he would see something so beautiful only for it to be taken away from him. And the part that David is saying here is that these pleasures, this fullness of joy, are forevermore. They are everlasting. And what is this fullness of joy? How much does fullness of joy actually happen in this world? How many of us can give an adequate description of what fullness of joy is? Could you maybe write an essay and say, this is what fullness of joy feels like? How often does something exciting happen to you? And maybe even an hour later, you're back just to living your life. I was cruising around the house today. Brothers arrived with his wife and kid. They're flying out tomorrow. Katie's friends are over. It's a happening place. Didn't get my afternoon nap, but life's still good. And, you know, the question turned to my clothing. And, uh, you know, they didn't like the color of my pants, a few people in the household. But uh, I was said, well, yeah, but these, and I found out what the, the name brand was. These are Burberry, which is actually a very expensive name brand, by the way. Uh, and then I went upstairs and got a new shirt on because they said, it'll look better with a brighter, lighter shirt. That was my wife's suggestion. And, you know, it's as white as I could find. And Hugo Boss and, uh, you know, Burberry, Hugo Boss, you can't go wrong with this type of fashion. And I remember um, buying this and thinking, ah, this is good stuff, Mark. These are really nice clothes and all of that. And I thought when I was trying to figure out joy, I was like, yeah, I've got some nice clothes. And then I thought about other things that have given me joy. And then I realized, wow, even when I had some joy over the clothes, it turned to misery when everyone was telling me that they didn't like the color of my pants. And that's actually a, a very mundane example of everything in this life. There's a whole lot of things we get excited about that really aren't worth getting that excited about. And even the things that we get excited about in this life, they don't last very long. You get a promotion at work, it's exciting for maybe a day or two, and guess what? Life then goes on. And you get married or engaged as many are doing right now at faith. Love is in the air and you're excited. But guess what, Dylan? You're going to get married and after a few months, you're just going to be Dylan. And it's going to be like, well, on with life. And I'm sorry to tell you that. And Maybe Zach will still be single laughing about it. 
There's fullness of joy. (laughs) But the point is, so much of the things in our life, we say, yes, I want that. We get it. And then it's, oh, it's back to living. It's the new house. It's the new car. It's whatever it may be, the holiday we finally get to go on. And then we always seem to fall back into, well, this is my life. And so the point I'm trying to say is that this fullness of joy, these pleasures forevermore are something that have to be more believed by faith than experienced by sight in this life. But nevertheless, that should give us some joy knowing the fullness of joy that awaits us as the Holy Spirit fills us completely as holy people. Now, what can we say by application? I just want to finish off with how I think we ought to look at this psalm. Matthew Henry has a beautiful line at the beginning of his exposition of this psalm. He says, This psalm has something of David in it, but much more of Christ. That's a beautiful sentence to open up with. And I thought about that, so what I did is I went back through the psalm and I thought about how would Christ have read this psalm? So how does David read this psalm? is one thing. How does Christ read this psalm? So, for example, in verse 3, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And then you get to the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, Here I am and the children you have given me. He is not ashamed to call us brothers. We're the excellent ones in the eyes of Christ in whom is all his delight. When David read this psalm, he thought about you and me. We are the excellent ones in whom is all his delight. But then also God's providence. Maybe he reads verses 5 and 6 as David did. And David sees God's providence in this, but Christ sees God's providence. And Christ will say, behold, as we read earlier, I have come to do your will. But then knowing that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And that was just as much God's providence as it was when God raised him from the dead. Christ trusted in God's providence. And also God's preservation. You think about David confessing how God preserves him in verses 7 to 8. And how does Christ read that? I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. The only way He could have gone to the cross is by believing these verses. I will not be shaken because I've set the Lord before me. Or God's promise as he reads verses 9 and 10, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And let me tell you, this verse is quoted so many times in the New Testament to speak of the fact that Christ did not see corruption that Christ would be raised from the dead. So as Christ goes to the cross, He goes to the cross as someone who believes Psalm 16 that God will not let His body see corruption, but will raise Him from the dead. But then finally, God's pleasures in verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy 
At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Who is at the right hand of God? At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Who is at the right hand of the Father? Christ. When David says, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He is the source of our pleasures forevermore. At your right hand, me, after I have been raised from the dead, after you have vindicated me, so that I might take delight in all of the excellent ones, that will be the spring from which all pleasures forevermore will be given to God's people. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for this psalm and ask that it may be a delight to us as it was to David, but more importantly, as it was to our Savior, who could read these words with such joy, knowing that their fulfillment was not in David, but in Christ. And we pray that as he is at the right hand of the Father on high, that he may be the source of our pleasures forevermore. Amen.